Welcome to the Told Me podcast to learn and develop for medical educators from the Frank H. Netter MD School of Medicine. This podcast is for busy medical school faculty who want to expand their knowledge in teaching. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Coplett, and I will bring you interviews with experts in medical education, fellow faculty, and medical students to discuss the issues most relevant to today's medical educators. Today, we're talking about how we can be effective teachers even in our busiest moments. In particular, how we can do this in the hospital setting, where patients are acutely ill, and for students and residents, learning to care for acutely ill patients is vital. We're going to get perspectives, experience, and suggestions from two of Netter's fantastic clinician educators who teach students and residents in the hospital every day. Dr. David Regelman is a hospitalist in internal medicine at St. Vincent's Medical Center, the internal medicine residency program director, and the director of the fourth-year internal medicine sub-internship for Netter. Dr. Scott Kurtzman is Chair of Surgery and Residency Program Director at Waterbury Hospital, and he's also the Assistant Dean for Graduate Medical Education for the School of Medicine. Scott and David, thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having us. The hospital is almost always busy, especially over the last year, but when it's really bustling, and your first responsibility is to your patients. How do you find time for teaching? And Scott, I'm going to ask you this first one. So it, we're not just talking about any teaching. We're talking about how do you find time for good teaching in those moments? Thanks, Lisa. I think this is actually a perfect question for a surgeon because so much of our life is in the moment during the action when things are actually happening, probably more so and we'll see David's thoughts, then on rounds or uh, in other kinds of practices. So a perfect example is the trauma room. Uh, each trauma is staffed by an attending surgeon as well as senior and junior residents and a whole host of other supporting people. Um, the students are invited in, and we do that for a variety of reasons. One is so they learn the basic medicine, and the other is they learn how this is a team activity. Um, so when I, when I'm down there with them, a good deal of the time, I'm looking around the room, seeing what's going on and then whispering in the student's ear, uh, for things they should observe, things they should see, things that they should do and when they can step in and being able to both see that and do things in the moment is a very, very powerful teaching opportunity. So that's a great example. And and so you're really, um, you know, sort of multitasking at the highest level in those moments, right? Because you're you're paying close attention to what's happening with the patient. You have to make sure the resident's doing the right thing, um, and you're you know feeding the teaching points to the medical students in those moments. Um, I. I know that even in in medicine, which is my specialty, um, that that multi-level uh, teaching experience, that is probably the most challenging moment that you're in when the teaching has to happen at all those different levels. But particularly in that moment, when you really have a critically ill patient and you have to look after the patient as well. Um, well do you have any thoughts about really that? Hot, sure. Even when it's getting really hot in there, that's why you need an experienced leader at the top. And not only am I whispering in the ears of the students, but I'm whispering in the ears of the residents. 
yeah. they see the students will see that they see that this is an ongoing teaching opportunity. Yeah, there are times when you have to sort of call timeout and take over, but that's that should be rare. Yeah. And so it's a well orchestrated team. People are moving. You've got respiratory therapists. You've got anesthesiologists. You've got an ER doctor. You've got a patient who may be jumping around, maybe screaming. All kinds of things are going on. And even if the students just learn how you restore order out of chaos, besides mm. the medicine, it's a very productive learning opportunity for them. So, and so what I hear you saying is you're not, you're not finding time to make a teacher. You are using the moment, right? You're really sort of leveraging that moment to get the best yep. teaching out of it and thinking about what each person needs to learn in that moment, which are different things for different people. The best so, way to learn something David, is by actually doing it. <laughs> so that's what we take advantage of. Yeah, which is so important to have that active experiential learning. And David, what about you? How do you find time or make time in the inpatient setting? Do you have the same approach or do you use a different approach? Well, I think some of the points that Scott brings up are excellent, particularly the critically ill patient. I think these kinds of problems that potentially can interrupt rounds often provide opportunities. I like to view the problems that present themselves as opportunities. So when there is a met team or a medical emergency team that's called to, to the scene in the middle of uh, a rounds when we are waxing philosophical about the pathophysiology of disease and going into the detail that internal medicine physicians like to go into, that provides us an opportunity to pull that team, the team that I'm rounding with, over to that patient and in very real time practice what we're preaching uh, so they have the opportunity then to see firsthand, not just what we're talking about when the dust settles, but also what we need to do to think quickly about a patient. There's that book, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow, uh, with which I, I would imagine you're both familiar. It's, a, it's, an, it's an excellent demonstration of that because when we have everything settled and we can sit back and really talk uh, about the patient and really dissect the problems in a non-surgical way, but in a, in a way that is detailed and perhaps involves a little bit more verbiage. That's one kind of thinking, but then snapping into high gear to address a critically ill patient provides another way of thinking. And I think that's also part of the unwritten curriculum. It may not be so much of the medical knowledge, ACGME core competency, as it is the systems-based practice or the practice-based learning, that sort of meta metacognition, that, that thinking about the way we have to learn, thinking about the way we think, um, which is essential to, to the practice of medicine, regardless of your specialty or subspecialty. I, I think that's a, that's a great, um, that sort of the underpinnings of what's happening in those teaching moments is a great thing to bring up. And so often I think we don't pull the curtain back enough for students to say, here's what I'm teaching. Here's why I'm teaching it right now. Here's what I want you to be learning. But that's sort of what you're doing, right? If you said, hey, you know, if you talk to them about system one and system two, and they're now starting to learn these things because as we are teaching clinical reasoning um, very deliberately um, in the year one and two curriculum, they they start to learn those things. So 
Um, so they they get that. I think they could apply it to different scenarios, and that's exactly what's happening. That's really um, such a great point. I think the very choice that an attending makes to pause rounds to say, listen, guys, we have to attend to this mm-hmm. critically ill patient is a lesson in and of itself. Yep. A mentor of mine um, once said that teaching is patient care. You have to teach so that students and residents provide the best patient care now and in the future. And it sort of goes both ways. So taking care of patients is teaching and teaching is patient care because they're going to be taking care of patients soon. So that's what that just reminded me of what you said. Um, So we often recommend that faculty should grasp the teachable moments. That's what I hear you both saying. And I just wanted to talk about what that means in medicine. So the definition of a teachable moment is an event that creates opportunity for learning or positive change. Uh, So David, I was wondering if you could think of another example, because the the patient who's critically ill um, on the medicine service is, is one great example of a teachable moment. I was wondering if you had another example that maybe you recently had um, and what you chose to teach in that moment. Absolutely. Just recently, I met a young gentleman for the first time who had had a complication of a surgical procedure. He had had a cervical, a C6 laminectomy and had had a complication from that. And when I first met him, I went into the room with the team and the patient was immediately belligerent and pejorative and profane. And I I let him speak. I, I looked at the shocked expressions of my team around me. I let him speak. And I said to him, let me just start by introducing myself and letting you know who I am. And I introduced my team as well. And I also said, I understand that you may be under a lot of stress right now. I recognize that. I read a whole lot about you and I I spoke about you with my colleagues, but I want to let you know that I'm going to be respecting you throughout our relationship, our therapeutic relationship. And I expect the same degree of respect from you. And he responded very, very well to that. And his concern that he expressed very clearly after he had calmed down a little bit and had been given the opportunity to calm down was the fact that he had been asking for help because he was sitting in his own stool and had been requesting that a nurse assist him and had not been getting prompt help. And it, I think it was a, it was a very, it was right in line with rounds. It didn't take any time to, to speak to your last point about uh, trying to teach in a, in a bustling uh, clinical environment. And at the same time, it allowed my residents to see how I approached trying to diffuse a potentially volatile situation or what started out as a frankly volatile situation. So it was, it was, a, it was a teachable moment that pre- presented itself uh, at, at the bedside that was very, very easy to seize because it was seamless with 
what we had to do as a team for this patient anyway. And and the and the other point, so you demonstrated right how to diffuse a volatile situation, and also the other point there being in my mind is the in the immense sense of vulnerability that patients feel in the hospital, and really bringing that to light um, and such important teaching points. Um, so let's talk about there's and there's so many teachable moments. I know I'm skipping over so many great examples. I wanted to ask you, Scott, um, if we could start thinking about and talking about what are specific teaching methods that you might use when time is really tight. Well, um, first of all, in order for us to be able to teach effectively, and I'm referring to the surgical setting, but I think you can extrapolate this to any setting. One of the secrets is you have to have a prepared learner. So in the particular case of an operation, which we're going to extrapolate from there, it's really important that, the, that you tell the students the night before, tomorrow we're going to be doing a, a, uh, an aortic aneurysm. And I want you to be prepared for what the steps of the operation are. And I want you to be knowledgeable about the anatomy so that if we get into trouble or something happens, you will be able to follow what's going on. So I think part of the secret, and again, this is where it's extrapolatable, is you have to let the students know as best possible, except for the emergency situation, that it's the expectation that they will prepare for what they're going to see the next day. And, you know, if you really think about it, all of medical school is preparation for practice. Um, and so whether it's managing multiple patients that come to the emergency department with a variety of illnesses, or teaching them about what's going on when a crisis happens or an inadvertent step happens in the operating room. It's all about being prepared. So I think that would be my hint is to give them a heads up as to what's coming so they can react. They, they'll understand what I'm doing when I react to a change in the environment. I love that you said that because one of my one of my biggest tips that I will that I that I like to share is it's not a teaching technique is that one of the best things you can do to help yourself when time is tight is in advance do a little upfront work of setting expectations so the big expectations so I'm with you for a month here's you know what to expect here's what you're expected to do on the wards and then the smaller in the you know it each sort of teaching setting expectation right here's expected what's of, of rounds today and we're going to see this patient here's what I want you to prepare those uh, that groundwork actually makes the teaching and the learning far more effective and efficient than in the moment too, because I bet you can get a whole lot further in the learning, Scott, when you have a student who's prepped and knows the anatomy and the pathophys too, oh, sure. because you don't yeah, need to spend that time teaching what they can learn in a text, right? You want to get into the more difficult aspects. And this is a full contact uh, thing that we're doing here. Often it's not an it's not a, a drill. They got to know so that if I ask them, what are the things that we could hurt during a thyroid operation? That, and they're prepared. I'll say, okay, now let's try and find the uh, the nerve, the, the recurrent laryngeal nerve that we could be injured. But if they don't come to be prepared, then showing them where the nerve is a waste of, is a waste of time. Yeah, it's a great suggestion, um, David. Any specific teaching methods that you like to use when time is really tight? There's a tried and true method 
known as the Socratic method, which often works very effectively when we're talking about a patient and when we encounter a knowledge deficit, whether it's related to a learner inadequately preparing for the day or for that particular pathology that the patient is exhibiting. But I find it to be a relatively streamlined process to continue down the road of questioning and asking why, asking how, asking the learner to provide that information. And if there is uh, an issue that comes up to which I don't know the answer, that happens occasionally. I might, I might. Not to Scott, by the way. I don't think that happens to Scott. That never happens. (laughs) Right. So I, 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 I think that it's a great opportunity to say, you know what? I don't know. To have the confidence to say, I don't know, that's a question that we can answer together. And that, that I think, hammers home the fact that we have chosen as physicians a life of learning and that we're all going to continue to learn. When we stop learning, we might as well throw in the towel. So that's something that medical students and residents, I think, really benefit from hearing, obviously, <laughs> not all the time. You, you want to know some things, but but I think it's very beneficial to recognize that we're, we're in a field where we are consistently behind the eight ball. There is new knowledge, new research coming out all the time. This past year has been a perfect example of that. The way that we manage COVID-19 has changed dramatically since this pandemic, for, since we first learned of this disease. So being able to say, I don't know the answer to that, let's find the answer to that. Let's n- have the confidence to know that we can find the answer to that. That's not exactly the Socratic method, but I think that it is a logical step in the Socratic method to yeah. continually question it's almost an inevitable step in the Socratic method, right? Because if you're really pushing the envelope of how far can we go before we run out of what we know, and there's always something more to learn, you're inevitably going to get to that place. And 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 that's actually modeling, and that's modeling of um, self-directed learning. And one uh, and one incredibly important thing that we do. So I, on my list of what do you do when time is tight, it's using modeling, and modeling is different than. Um, it's different than when students shadow. When they shadow, it's very passive. There's no attention paid to the student, right? They're just sort of the fly on the wall. But when you're modeling something, you're bringing their attention to what you are already doing. So when you say, you know, that's something that we all need to look up, you know, let's think about how we might look that up. Um, You're modeling self-directed learning. Or if um, you're in the midst of, you know, just incredibly of a really large number of patients that day and you don't have time to watch the student or allow the student, let's say, to do the abdominal exam on rounds, you can say, I'd like you to watch how I do the abdominal exam and talk through what you're doing, right? So, um, so that's what I would consider that. And of course, asking questions um, to stimulate clinical reasoning um, is... Uh, it is, in fact, a tried and true and evidence-based method for enhancing learning. I just was thinking- Scott. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I was yeah. just going Go to. I was just going to add 
just as Scott was describing, preparation for a procedure, which, which applies to internal medicine as well. If we're doing a lumbar puncture at the bedside of paracentesis, they've got to review that that procedure. There are excellent resources out there so that they can have in their mind's eye what the next steps are, where their feet have to be, where their hands have to be, how to stay sterile if the procedure is going to be sterile at the bedside. Uh, it applies to preparation for rounds, for answering questions that are going to come up in rounds, for having a good understanding of the pathologies of the patients as well. Having done that background will help to obviate some of the some of the uh, perhaps longer spells of silence when those Socratic questions are asked. And that, so you came back around to Scott. I'm going to come back around to Scott because I thought of a teaching technique that I really love that I bet, Scott, you use all the time. And that is asking what if questions. So you take the certain, you take the scenario that you're in with the patient that you're talking about, and then you create the what ifs that allow you to teach things that maybe the students don't get to see very often, or you want them to anticipate what they may see later. Um, So, you know, what if this patient spikes a fever tonight? What are you going to do? Or what if this patient were 60 instead of 20? You know, how would that change your uh, differential diagnosis? Um, And I'm guessing you probably use that a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Um, That comes up in treatment planning, particularly with cancer patients, which is who I deal with the most. What are we going to do if the lymph nodes come back positive? What are we going to do if we can't find a lymph node? What are we going to do if the patient is hormone resistant? So thinking through all the possibilities. And then to to David's point, where are you going to look it up? So let's say the patient has their operation. They come back and there are two lymph nodes positive in the axilla. How are we going to know what to do? Where are you going to go to find out that information? And then just to expand a little bit, on that, <clears throat> sometimes you'll get them to a point where it's not known to medical science. So the next question is, how would you design a study to answer that question? Mm-hmm. Love that. So it's either, I don't know, you don't know, let's go look it up. Or I don't know, science doesn't know, how are we going to ask a question in a scientific way so that we can get that information? Fully understanding that we can't do a ra- randomized controlled study on every patient that we see. That's actually an oxymoron. But uh, thinking, doing that brings them through the exercise of how do we get, how do we get to information? How do we get to knowledge? That's excellent, and um, and I love that you brought up the where are we going to look that up? Because teaching students where to get information and the most appropriate place for the question that for first of all teaching them to ask the question. And I will say they're actually, they do, a, um, they they work on that quite a lot in year one and year two now. So I do think the clinical questions that they're asking when they get to year three and four are better um, than probably we were at asking those questions when we hit year three. Um, but, but helping them learn the where to look it up. Oh, that's so valuable because you want to make sure they're getting good information. When I was a medical student, one of the professors said to me, it's okay to say, I don't know the answer, but you have to say, I do know where to look it up. Yeah. Oh, that's good. And and I had a um, one of uh, my actual my program director used to say um, that it's 
it's uh, it's okay to not know the answer. It's not okay not to think about where to look it up. But I like the fact that you're saying you have to know where to look it up. That's part of the learning. That's fantastic. So we've talked about um, strategies that we use when time is just at its busiest. We've talked about some some specific teaching techniques. Um, and we know that it does take extra time to teach when we're already busy. And we know it's an important responsibility. But I wanted to talk just for a, a couple of moments about what teaching gives back to us personally and professionally. I know that teaching is a central part of your professional identities, and you've chosen to make it a big part of your career. Uh, so, David, I'm going to start with you. Um, what Tell us what teaching gives back to you. Well, Lisa, this time of year is the perfect time of year to be asking that question because one of the thrills that I continually get from this position is watching a wide-eyed, confused intern in July of their first year postgraduate excel and conquer that learning curve and reach a point of confidence and competence and independence as they come to the end of their final year of training. So I'm seeing that right now in, in my residence. I see the same thing as students transition from their third year of medical school into their sub-internships. The, the trajectory that they take, the distance that they traverse, metaphorical distance that they traverse is really spectacular to see as well. So I, I have the pleasure of working with uh, MS3s, uh, third year medical students, as well as fourth years, and listening to a presentation from the same student as a third year and comparing it to that presentation as a fourth year is really dramatic and and very fulfilling to have been a part of of the training of these young physicians or young soon to be physicians uh, is is very very satisfying very gratifying work and and i think it 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 truly is as you said a transformative experience for them and scott i'm going to ask you the same question and and you can answer it from the the level of, you know, what does teaching give back to you in those moments, on those days when you're busy and you're exhausted um, or to the um, or at the 30,000 foot view, um, like what David's talking about? Well, we, we see both. We see the, you know, the ultra intense experiences and then we see the, the slower ones, the slower experiences, things that don't happen quite at the same pace. For me, well, many students come to a surgical rotation with implicit bias and fear. They're stunned. They're coming to the rotation thinking that all they're going to do is get screamed at the whole time and not learn anything. And all surgeons do is cut people up and they go play golf. And for me, it's very gratifying at the end of the month for someone who doesn't have any intention of going into surgery to say, you know, I learned a whole lot on that rotation. I'm not going to be a surgeon. But I learn how you approach patients. I learn how you talk to patients. I learn about the human nature of it. And I also, by the way, learned a lot about the diseases that you take care of. 
and they walk away with an entirely different experience. And the way I get them there is, at the very first time I meet them, I coach them two things. One is you've got to be a prepared learner. We spoke about that already. If you know you're going to see someone with pancreatitis, you better read up the night before. And number two is method acting. You got to dive in the deep end. For the month that you're with us, I want you to be a surgeon. I want you to walk like a surgeon. I want you to eat like a surgeon. Immerse yourself in the experience. And by doing so, you will come out the other end having received an education. And if you never go in the OR again, that's perfectly fine with me. But you're going to grow as a person. You're going to grow as a doctor in ways that you don't expect to. And when at the end of the month, when they say, you know what, you were right. I was scared to death coming in this. I learned a great deal. Thank you very much. I'm never mm. going in the OR again. That's a victory. But that's and that's what third year is all about. That's what that's what we want students to do on every single rotation. That's great. Thank you. David and Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Uh, it was fun. I, I really appreciate your perspectives and your insights. You're very welcome. Thank you, Lisa. Great pleasure. Thank you for, so much for inviting us to speak to you. Thanks so much. I'm Lisa Coplett. Thanks for listening. And check out our next podcast in two weeks. I would like to thank the people who contributed to this show, Katie Lyons, our fabulous producer, and David DeRoche, our program director. For more information on other faculty development opportunities at Netter, email katie.lyons at qu.edu. For more information on all of Quinnipiac's podcast, visit qu.edu slash podcast. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at QU Podcasts. Thank you.